You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. All right, guys, welcome to today's show. And joining me on the show today, I've got a big game and fly fishing guide out of New Mexico. His name is Jake Trujillo, and I'm super pumped to talk to him. I want to pick his brain about everything outdoors, what he likes going after, um, chasing elk in New Mexico in September. If, If that's not on your bucket list, you need to create a new one. Anyways, this is going to be a good episode. I hope you guys enjoy it. Let's jump right in. You're listening to The Western Rookie, a hunting podcast full of tips, tricks, and strategies from seasoned Western hunters. There are plenty of opportunities out there. We just need to learn how to take on the challenges. Hunting is completely different up there. I've harvested 26 big game animals. You can fool their eyes, but you can't fool their nose. The 300 yards back to the road turned into three miles back the other way. It's always cool seeing new hunters go and harvest an animal. I don't know what to expect. If there's anybody I want in the woods with me, it'll be you. All right, guys, welcome to today's show. And joining me on the show today is Jake Trujillo. And he is, man, just talking with him for the few minutes before uh, we started recording, he's got a lot of irons in the fire. So I'm not even going to dive into most of it. I'll let him do that explaining. But Jake, thanks for hopping on the show with me. Yeah, yes, sir. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I when when you reached out, you were telling me a little bit about the stuff that you did uh, in the email, and I'm like, dude, I've got to pick this guy's brain. He he kind of has his hand in a lot of different things, from uh, professional rodeo to fly fishing guide, elk and deer working. I mean, just a little bit of everything. So why don't you dive further into some of that stuff? Uh, tell the listeners yes, a little bit about yourself. Oh, yeah. My name is Jake Trujillo, and I'm uh, originally from here in northern New Mexico, uh, born and raised. And, yeah, we kind of – we stay pretty busy. I I stay pretty busy up here. I'm a professional hunting guide. We do a lot of fly fishing, hunt elk, 
from September to December. Um, I'm a guide at ranch called Trauma Land and Cattle Company. Um, let's see what else. Uh, I, I'm a steer wrestler. I was pro rodeo and professional rodeoing for a while, and now I'm just training, training a couple horses, a horse of mine, and then guide fly fishing in the summertime and work at a place called Los Alamos National Laboratory and in some of my free time. So that's pretty much what I'm about. Man, that you, you must not get a lot of sleep. It sounds like you're just going, going, going. I'm, I'm surprised you didn't say you guide certain things at night. Like you go trap mountain lions or something like that in the middle of the, in the middle of the night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's a uh, sleep is especially, well, you know how it is, especially that first weekend of September, we don't get much sleep all the way through Christmas, but I love it. I wouldn't know what to do with myself if we got a break. No, that's, that's what I look forward to. I always joke with people. I tell them that's actually my Christmas when September hits, you know, that's my time of year. That's what I look forward to all year and get prepared for. So I enjoy it. Yeah, that's awesome. I know, I know the feeling like that week leading up to the first hunt is just like, I find myself, all I do is dream about hunting and then I wake up and I don't even feel rested because it was like such an intense dream about chasing after animals. And then, especially like once you, once you break the seal and actually get out there on day one, your nerves, I feel like can kind of calm down a little bit, but leading up to it, it just seems like the pressure is mounting. Like it's about to happen. Oh, am I ready? Did I remember all my gear? I know I'm missing something. I just don't know what yet. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you. I think that's, that's my favorite time. Like you said, is that week before, like, I mean, going through everything making right sure rifles are zero and you know the month before we'll go clear roads and do some scouting and all that and it's like you know as soon as i pull my pack out trying to make sure i have everything ready to go i i get excited i get in the, i get in the zone the real zone i'm in the zone all year long but as soon as you get everything packed up and head north it's like it's kind of surreal to me and I'm I'm just lucky and fortunate that I get to live it every week. You know, it's like it never ends. I got a new game plan, change change of scope. You know, the scope of what I want to do, how I want to hunt something every week. So it's pretty. I love it. It never gets old. I I could hunt every day if they let me. Yeah, the I'm always curious with guides. Um, you know, you're out there and you've got a huge priority of getting somebody else an animal. Do you have a certain week of the year that you cut out for yourself to where you can go? Or do you get your fix by helping other people out? Oh, and, and no, I, I don't get to hunt. Um, I mean, a lot of us don't. A lot of my, my good friends that are guys, we don't get to hunt for ourselves. But you're exactly right. You hit the nail on the head. I That is, I love the challenge of taking someone who's never experienced the outdoors and giving them the opportunity to harvest an animal. Yeah, I think it's, I love it. That's what the addicting part is to me. And it's like a personal challenge, right? I mean, especially there's nothing that beats someone who's never even heard an elk, you know, and if you get a bull crashing through the timber towards you and stops and just lit balls at you and you can see the hair on the back of their neck stand up and that's what makes it for me i love it dang to get to see the excitement in their eyes you know when they see an elk is just 
surreal to me. I don't know. That's what I love. So you're exactly right. That's where I get my fix is watching other people get to experience it. The, the Southwest has always intrigued me like Arizona, New Mexico, yes, sir. those States, like you guys produce some amazing deer and elk and, you oh, yeah. know, like growing up, you always see the covers. It, it's in the Rocky Mountains, like a, an elk bugling with fog coming out of its mouth, or, you know, you can see the hot breath coming out. And I just feel like it wasn't until later in life or later into my pursuit of elk hunting that I realized just how much of a gem the Southwest is in terms of big game hunting. Oh, it is. And it's so diverse, you know. I- I, I talk with my clients all the time, you know, when we're, we're at Chamaland and that's what we call short for Chamaland and cattle company. We just call it Chamaland, but you know, we hunt, you know, in early September, we're hunting at 10,000 feet above 10,000 feet, you know, and then in the winter time during the cow hunts, when all those elk push down the mountain because of the snow, we're hunting in the low, the low grasslands and fields, you know, at 7,500 feet and you hunt everything from sage to above the timber line and it's you're right it's so diverse and there's animals scattered in every type of climate you know we have some lower the lower part of the state the southern part of the state there's elk that kind of venture out into the desert and it it is very interesting very interesting yeah and the 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 thing that too that's crazy is the temperature swings you know you'll you'll step out of the pickup in the morning start hunting and it will be 18 19 degrees and by noon it's 78 degrees you know it's crazy oh and i'm i'm guessing you've got to prepare the hunters for a lot of that stuff you know sharing gear and equipment advice what to oh, bring yeah. what not to bring um yes, sir. i i would be very out of my element in new mexico or arizona like i I know we get temperature swings in the mountains too. Like you'll wake up to snow and it might be 70 in the afternoon. And so the whole layering yes, process, it makes sense. But there's people who don't really understand that. Like if say you're coming like I did from Wisconsin, you just right. pack on clothes because it's going to be cold mm-hmm. the entire season when you're sitting out in the woods trying to shoot a deer with a rifle. Um, yes, sir. For people who might not fully understand or appreciate the change in, in temperature throughout the day, the climate, the the different variables that switch on you all the time. Um, could you share some gear advice or what people um, should plan for? Uh, you got you to gotta pack for a battle, right? Yeah, I mean, I've been out there, like you said, and all of a sudden a small snow squall will come set on top of you. But what I do personally is I try to dress as light as I can. Um, but be prepared for inclement weather in my pack if need be. Like I have, a, my personal rule is I want to be a little bit chilled. If it's a cold morning, I want to be a little bit on the chilly side because I know that within 15 minutes, I'm going to be hot. And the minute you sweat, you're done. Uh, especially in cold weather up here, if you start sweating, you're done because it does get frigid cold sometimes. But I try to dress as light as I can and be a little bit on the uncomfortable side and start walking, whatever we're doing, hiking for 15, 20 minutes and see where I'm at and kind of, you know, gauge it from there. But 
that's kind of my rule of thumb. I found that it's worked best for me. Um, because you're right. I've, I've had folks and I've done it too. You know, when I first started, you get your, your base layers on your thermals, you know, and you start walking, you're sweating and you don't have time to take stuff off whenever you're in the middle of elk. And so I've kind of learned, yeah, I'm a, I keep myself a little bit on the light side. And then if I need to layer up, I pull something out of my pack, but that's typically what I do. Yeah, that makes sense. I feel like all growing up and even my first experiences out West chasing after elk, I did the opposite where it was like, man, I want to get as warm as possible in the morning because I want to go into the day not already being cold. Well, that would work against me because I'd get to my destination and like even, even a 20 minute drive in the car in Wisconsin, I'm fully layered up for like harsh Wisconsin winter. I've got the heat blasting. By the time I even get out of the car and get my gun out of the case and loaded, I'm already sweating, which just ends up making for a miserable rest of the day. So that's, that's a great piece of advice to start out chilled. And then you can always correct that down the road. But once you get wet, it's over. Right. No, you're, you're right. It's uh, yeah. Once you're wet up here, you're, it's done. And cause it does, you know, like in the dead of winter and people, you know, when they think of New Mexico, they, it doesn't really, they don't think about it, but you know, we hunt in December, I've hunted negative 13, you know, we're hunting cows and it, it just, it can change in a heartbeat up here. Yeah. That's man, New Mexico. I mean, all, all I ever knew about it, I would just imagine a giant desert and that's all that there was. I thought the same thing about Arizona until I went through those States. I didn't understand how gorgeous they are, how much wildlife there is out there, how diverse it is from, you know, you could be, like you said, low in elevation or like in a high elevation desert up into the mountains, like thick timber in a hurry. Yes, sir. Yep. Yeah. No, you're exactly right. And it's interesting too, you know, like I said, there's some elk herds that are in the southern part of the state and then we got the you know we call it the san juan herd that's in central northern new mexico and it's interesting to see how the climate you know changes the animals between the nutrition and the weather patterns i mean there's differences in the the elk the deer it's very cool to see how different parts of the state you know affect the wildlife and i enjoy that a lot and I could imagine, I may be wrong on this, but I would imagine that based on the geographical region that you shoot the animal in, you probably notice a difference in in taste just based off of their diet. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, you you, you uh, knock down an elk, you know, that's kind of hanging out in the, I guess, the, the southernmost part of northern New Mexico, if that makes any sense, you know, where there's a lot of sagebrush, you know, they got, and especially mule deer, you know, if they're hanging out in those sage flats, you really can taste the sage. And like we'll, you know, harvest cows up way up north right by the Colorado border, and they've just been eating high mountain grass. And they taste really, really clean. But you're exactly right. You do. It's It's pretty cool. I'm really interested. A lot of these states now, I mean, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation has done a great job of relocating elk and trying to build populations in a bunch of different states. And I hear about elk getting shot in Nebraska, just absolute giants, and they're shot like basically in a cornfield. And I'm like, dude, can you imagine yeah. a bunch of corn fed elk? How good that would taste? Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can't get great grain finish. You can't get much better than that. <laughs> uh, but no, and I, I, you know, I had a, I had a client last year. He was from Pennsylvania, and they were showing me pictures of elk that they have out there. Um, I didn't, I didn't even know they had elk out there. And you're right, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation is doing a lot, like you said, to get elk hunting going in different states and. It's it's wild to me, you know, seeing pictures of elk in Pennsylvania and stuff like that. I I just think it's pretty cool. Yeah. How many, I mean, I feel like in all of these different states where elk are, are starting to pop up again or be reintroduced, like there's going to be a learning curve, um, not only for the elk, but the hunters as well. I know the guys that I hunt with in Colorado, they didn't really figure out the unit that they were hunting until several years in. And I would imagine... It's the same thing down there. How how long had you been hunting before you felt you got a true grasp on the animal animal movement in the areas that you're hunting? Oh shoot, um, I never have a grasp, and I don't ever let myself think I have a grasp. I don't. I'm. I never get comfortable. If that makes any sense, I never let myself get comfortable. Uh, stuff's always changing. Yeah. I mean, I, I can, I learn an area pretty good. You know, I've been hunting at Chamba land for six years and that ranch is 32,000 acres, 33, somewhere around there. It, it's massive. And after six years, I, I feel like now I've got a pretty good handle of the geographical routes, if that makes sense. You know, I, I really know my way around the ranch and but the elk patterns change, I would say, have changed, like, what I've noticed, like, every other year. Wow. And, like, we're, me and my dad really, really like to go hunt deer. It's a place called the Rio Chama Wildlife Management Area. And it's a draw tag. You got to drop through the state of New Mexico. But it's a high-quality mule deer hunt. And we've been fortunate that I've drawn it a couple times in high school. And we've had a bunch of friends and family draw it. So pretty much every year we get to go hunt it and he grew up hunting there with my grandpa and i like i said grew up hunting with my dad when i was little and i like to think i know that area just an example like the back of my hand but you know i i never like i said i i just i'm never comfortable telling myself that i've got it figured out you know because i i don't feel like i'm as sharp if i let myself think that i always try to stay on my toes but like with the elk movement type like we were talking they change and i it's weather patterns i mean there's different variables but i always try to pay attention every year to something new because they do change a lot yeah and i mean i've i've heard the stories i've only hunted two years in this one unit with my buddies but i've heard the stories Mm -hmm. of how they will they'll shift Thankfully, there's a couple spots where we seem to run into them, and they've they've seemed to catch up with decent bulls every year. Um, right. I'm sure that hunting early September is a whole different ball game than hunting in the winter. Uh, I have zero experience hunting elk during the rut with a bow. Um, typically, I'm out there late October, early November. And so it's a lot different than, you know, the people that are chasing bugling elk around the mountains. What could somebody expect? Like what, maybe just walk me through a normal day if there's such a thing in September. Like 
how does that hunt go from the time you wake up until the time you get back to camp? So I'm a very punctual guy, I guess. So I, I, my deal is I always get somewhere early because I like pulling up a truck and turning it off and letting everything get quiet. But I kind of, we know the general area that elk are in. I mean, we know where they're at. Um, so I'll pull up, you know, to wherever, wherever I'm hunting and like the ranch that we got, that's got a pretty good system. They split the ranch up into units and we all get a unit with our client to go hunt for great safety purposes and whatnot. So we're not stepping on each other's toes. And, um, I'll go to my little, my little hot spots, you know, and then like early September, my, my play is completely world different, you know, from that peak rut to post rut type of type of calling, locating, whatever, you know, um, I do a lot of, a lot of raking in early September. I've found that that works really, really well. And there's a gentleman that I guide with and he's one of the best callers I've ever been around. His name is Rick Rhodes. Sure to laugh if he hears me telling everyone this but uh he's honestly one of the best callers i've ever been around and we've got he's turned me on to it and i do a lot of raking in early september and when i say a lot of raking i do a lot of just small sets of easy raking you know and i i do a lot of research um i read books i watch i mean youtube videos of guys that have called forever and what they find and i kind of try to get my own system going but i find that that works a lot um that early season raking you know it's just like those bulls they they're starting to kind of feel good starting to get you know feeling their oats a little bit they'll go start scraping on a tree making some noise and that's really interesting because a lot of times those those bulls will come in quiet to you you know and that's a completely different game than later in September. So it, it's kind of hard. But, yeah, I, I, I'm a really slow hunter, too. I really, really take my time. And that's kind of my style, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, now, you said you found kind of your hot spot, the, the area that you like to hunt. Right. It, it, are there consistent, like, terrain features that you'll find elk on that time of year? Um, throughout the property or is it kind of like hey you know I know in these two square miles there might like that's kind of where I'm focusing all my energy you know what there's such a high concentration of elk up there you know like early September those bulls are kind of weird you know sometimes they're still in their bachelor group sometimes they're not but they're above that I call it, I call it the mid range, you know, like if you're looking at a ridge, like a big ridge, the top, top of the ridge is the top and the bottom, I call the timber line. They always hang in that mid range, you know, and they'll kick out to go feed in the, you know, last minute of light, you know, first minute of light in the morning, they're going back up. And that's when you really got to go and get physical with them, you know, get in their wheelhouse in early September. Um, but they're like where I'm at, those bulls really hang out in that, what I call the mid range. 
you know, and I really try working those areas and picking those elk up because they're not brave enough or puffed up enough to start gathering cows and start kicking them out into the lower, the lower part of, you know, their breeding area, if that makes any sense. But that's kind of where I try to focus on early season is it's a lot of deep timber hunting for me. Okay. And, and you said, you said sometimes these early season bulls will come in quiet. Like if you get out there and rake. Yes, sir. What? Yep, they will. Do you have like a set amount of time? Do you say like, hey, we're going to rake. We're going to see if anything responds in 15 minutes or 45 minutes. Um, how, how do you kind of play that out? Well, so I, I, I guess just by feel, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't really overdo it when I'm calling or raking or whatever. Um, I, don't, I don't like giving elk a chance to really pin, to pin me down. So I'll kind of work something. I guess five, 10 minutes and I can, we can usually hear them or stepping, breaking twigs, whatever. But those bulls, they do come in quiet. You know, those bigger bulls, they're, they're interested, you know, they, uh, they come in looking to see what's going on versus coming in blind, you know, coming ready to fight you. If it was the end of September, they kind of come in on the creep, you know, wanting to see what's up and I'll, I'll stay somewhere. I, I guess I'll, I'll rake five or 10 minutes, you know, off and on, kick some rocks around, whatever. I give it 20, 30 minutes. And then we kind of move forward and just keep moving like that. And, you know, I found too, if you kind of do a little rake and I'll throw a couple of really, really, really soft cow calls in there and it'll kind of, sort of imitate you know a bull's thinking about getting a cow picked up or you might have one cow with him or something like that something to spark their interest to get them to come and just check you out that's typically my tactic early season okay so um, then are, are you set yeah. up like say you think a bull might be coming in uh are uh-huh. you setting up farther back from the from the hunter so that the bull almost no, has sir. to come back past them well, it de- it depends it depends on the hunter. Um, if I have an experienced elk hunter who's been in the mountains, definitely yeah. I mean that's the ideal that's the ideal thing, right? You want to swing those bulls into you, but if it's not, I I stick right with them and we try to do our best to keep hidden, you know, blending, whatever. But that so that's another challenge, you know, deciding kind of picking your game plan you know it's a a different world whenever you have to stay with a shooter and that throws a lot of different challenges your way too which is fun i think it's awesome yeah but yeah so you know if i have an experienced elk hunter who's been in the mountains harvested elk then yeah i'll I'll definitely step back and try swinging them in and doing what you're supposed to um but if not if i have a first-time hunter then we're dang sure they're with, I'm dang sure they're with them, you know, making sure that they, uh, they kind of learn, you know? Oh yeah. The, now a lot of the stuff that I'm going to bring up, it's just from other conversations with people. So you might, you might experience totally different results or scenarios than what I talk about. Uh, one thing that I was told is a lot of times with elk, they do a really good job somehow even from far away of pinpointing 
pretty precisely where a call is coming from or where a sound is coming from. Oh, yeah. And I've heard that one of the challenges is getting them to finish that last 40 yards. You know, uh, I've heard guys tell me, like, you might get a bull into 80 yards, but he'll right. he'll kind of stay back because he heard a noise. He's waiting for confirmation that, you know, it was an elk making that noise, whether it's a, a cow call, a bugle, or raking or anything like that. Are you using any type of, like, silhouette or decoy to, to try to finish him that distance, or um, are you using the terrain to ensure that he gets close enough? Um, how do you how do you kind of get them to close that last little bit? You know what i've I've never used a decoy, and that's just not how I mean. Growing up hunting, and I've been really interested in. It. I've been honestly wanting to try it, um, but I I get aggressive. I mean, if you know, I'll try to what I think is systematically working a bull. And they do, they get to that hang up, you know, it, like the prime example, right? If you're working a little, I guess, meadow, I wouldn't say that big, but a little opening, right? And those bulls, like you said, they'll hang up 20, 30 yards behind the trees. They they won't break that tree line, right? Um, I found he just, if you know they're hanging up for sure, and your wind is good, and you've got cover. I try. I personally try to close the distance. Okay. I try to close the distance physically, and then when I reached my personal boundary of comfort, you know, thinking, all right, I'm I'm close enough to him. I'm like within his bubble in his personal space. I'll you know start raking again if it's early season. You know, if it's September, I. I'll, I'll do not an aggressive bugle, but like a more aggressive satellite bull sound at him to make him think, man, he's in my wheelhouse. I got to go over here and do something about him, you know, or I got to go check it out because it's right here in my house kind of thing. And that's kind of, I found what works best for me, especially where we're at. Nice. Yeah. That's something, yeah. that's something that I hope to experience. I mean, like, hearing the video or watching the videos and hearing the stories from people who are in deep, thick timber and you can't see very far. And by the time you're going to get a shot at an elk, it's basically in your lap. I, yes, I've, I've just watched like the expression on people's faces on YouTube where you hear that bugle through the woods and they turn back at the camera. Like this is the greatest feeling I've ever experienced in my life. Uh, oh, I'm yeah. pumped about I that. It. I want to see, it. I want to do it so bad uh rifle hunting's awesome don't get me wrong i absolutely love it i love that camp i love the camaraderie there um just the whole feel of the atmosphere but to be back in the woods chasing after elk with a bow and having having them just screaming in your face that that's got to be a different level oh it, it is it i mean and i it and that that window right with those elk especially now. And I personally, I personally think it's all weather related, you know, has really gotten shorter, especially up here. Um, but I agree with you and I just enjoy that chess game. You know, it is such a chess match and I don't really try to be aggressive with them unless I absolutely have to. I like, 
outplaying them more than being aggressive, right? Because I think you have such a small window where you can be aggressive and it works every time. But other than that, you really got to think about what you're doing and systematically approaching. I mean, you got to pay attention to everything, especially especially whenever like we have a client, you really got to pay attention to everything to make it happen. Uh, oh yeah. It's not like you trying to work to one, you know, with your buddy calling behind you, you know, it's, that's why I love it. I think it's so cool. It's cause that adds another level of, uh, I guess making it interesting, you know, that I enjoy. Yeah. Having, having another person, I can, I can imagine that's got to be exciting, and also it can get frustrating. Like, I've taken people out hunting, and I love taking new people mm-hmm. out hunting. But uh, when you say, like, don't move, and in their mind they hear, like, oh, I can move a little bit, just not anything crazy. And you're like, no, I'm not joking. Do not move. Uh, just growing up hunting, you don't think about certain things. It's like second nature now, right? Like when ducks are flying, right. I don't pick my head up. I don't move around. I just sit tight right. until I hear their wings pass over me, and then I can turn my head and see what they're doing and where they're going. Where a first-time hunter, it's so exciting that they're, like, turning, they're getting excited, they're grabbing the gun, they're raising it up too early. And so I'm sure it's got plenty of challenges getting getting first-timers out there. Um, but that's also the exciting part is teaching and, oh, and watching oh, yeah. their response it to it. Is. Oh, no, it definitely is. And, you know, like, and that's just something I do. You know, I was always taught growing up, you got to try hard. That was always my dad's rule is no matter what you do, you got to try hard. And you get, you got to mean business. And I, and I do have that discussion with my, my clients, you know, we, I tell them we're going to have a great time, but once we step out of this truck, we're, we mean business and we're going to be serious. You do what I do and we're going to make this work and we're going to have a great time doing it. But at the same time, we mean business when we get out there. And, you know, I think that that streak of seriousness kind of really, really helps everybody and including myself pay attention and focus. You know, I got to keep myself in check and say, all right, it's game time. You know, got to forget about yesterday or, lunchtime or whatever and it's back to game time we gotta we really gotta focus and just make it happen yeah are you are you guys going back like to a lodge or a cabin every day or are you Mm -hmm. ever okay yep yep yeah it when i'm when when i'm there yeah we we go back we you know go eat lunch this and that and it's the furthest place on the ranch is about an hour and a half hour and 45 minutes uh, drive back to headquarters. Okay. And then we turn around and go right back out again. Um, you know, if I'm hunting other places here in New Mexico with some friends of mine, or whatever, I mean, we've done camps or, you know, whatever we can, whatever we can find horse trailers, hotel rooms, you know, it's kind of <laughs> all over the board. Man, I had a, I had a guest on this show not that long ago and he told me, his trick for Western hunting, he's from, gosh, I want to say he was from Pennsylvania. I don't remember now, and I really mm-hmm. should I really should have that answer. But um, he got a U-Haul truck, and he's like, dude, oh, a yeah. U-Haul truck, it's so cheap. They're cheaper than, like, getting a rental 
SUV or pickup right. truck and you can fit all of your stuff. You can use it as shelter. Like you can sleep in the back of it if you needed to. And I'm like, dude, this is hilarious. One day you're going to go out West to hunt and like some unit is going to have like a Penske, a budget, a U-Haul, everything all just sitting out in the front parking lot of, of a public land area. Uh, heck yeah, that's a good idea. I've never thought about that one. <laughs> I have to put some serious thought about that. You know, like it's, we laugh, we laugh about that. Like whenever we're hunting, hunting deer, like you said, hunting public land, yeah, we've got stuff just crammed everywhere. And we typically have our horses with us and we got stuff crammed in a horse trailer and man alive. It gets overwhelming sometimes. Definitely. Man, that's a good idea. I'm going to have to check that out. I need to I need to pick your brain on some of your your hunting with family and friends. Like you said you're taking horses out. That is yes, sir. that is like the most picturesque image of western hunting where when people are packing in their camp, they've got horses or mules, the saddle bags, they're all decked out and you can just get farther back in there. Uh it makes getting an elk or any type of animal out a lot easier. Um, why don't you talk about your experiences doing that? Yeah, so our, and we really only hunted horseback um, for mule deer. That's typically where we hunt horseback, and that's on that, that area I was telling you about, the Rio Chama Wildlife Area. We go on horseback there. A good friend of mine, I'll, his name's John Massengill, and this guy, he I, he draws this hunt every year it seems like and it's one of those hunts where they give 10 tags and, i mean it is hilarious we're always in there hunting but we're a little bit different we're riding our team roping horses our steer wrestling horses you know our performance horses they double as hunting horses for us in the fall yeah um and we have panniers that go on our like our team roping saddles you know and i mean we're packing out a deer so if we get one killed we can you know one horse can typically handle all the quarters of of a buck but that's yeah and it's different too like we'll ride in and kind of have an area where we know some bucks are moving through and we'll tie them up to a tree and hobble them and go tear off go hunting and if it doesn't work we get back to the horses get back on them and move down the road a little bit so we i mean it's not like the when we say we hunt on horseback we don't you know, have pack horses with us, this and that. If we kill something, we're are quartering them out, putting them on our saddles, and we're walking out, you know, walking our horses out on foot. Oh, okay. I mean, that's typically what we do. Yeah. Nice. Typically um, what we do up here. It, now, you said you said he's drawing it. I mean, it's a draw unit. I, I've noticed that yes, sir. there are some phenomenal units in both Arizona and New Mexico but mm-hmm. the draw is the it seems like one of the biggest challenges like once you get a unit uh you're probably going to have a lot of cool encounters with animals and whether or not it's the size or the the right age that you want that's a different story but it seems like a big part of it is just getting drawn for it how many oh, how many points are is. you having to acquire before you draw some of these units so there's no point system in new mexico oh wow as of right now it's just random chance i mean that's what it's supposed to be i I guess it there's no point system but it's crazy how it works you know there's 
some people I've known that have haven't drawn for 20 years. And then like that gentleman, that's a good family friend of ours, man. He's drawn, he draws a hunt every year. It's crazy. And like me, I haven't drawn anything since I was in high school and I'm 27 years old right now. I mean, it's kind of all over the board to be honest with you. It's very interesting how that works. Yeah, that's crazy. It seems like some people do have all the luck where they're constantly drawing stuff. I've got friends like that. My buddy, Sean, he drew a, a once in a lifetime moose tag and then two years later a once in a lifetime mountain goat tag and i'm like you gotta right. be kidding me there's guys who are in their like 70s that haven't been able to draw anything and exactly. you're getting them like every other year um right no it that's it's there's people like that man they they seem to strike gold all the time i'm not one of those guys here lately do you do you guys have over-the-counter units that you can go and hunt if you don't draw um for one of the others Oh man, I I'm not versed in this. They have some. They kind of do some depredation hunts. I want to say that may not be the right term, but then they have like a fourth choice. So you get three choices, right? So like if you're applying for a bull elk tag, you can pick one, two, or three. You have to pick three hunt codes, and you put in for those three hunts. But they have a a deal now where it's like a fourth choice. And if there's leftover tags in some units, I believe they you can draw one of those. You don't really get to pick where you go, per se. Um, it's kind of a new thing they started, and I'm not too versed in it. I mean, I, I never, I'm not versed in it because I don't, I don't put in for it. But yeah. other than that, there's, you know, you can get a like over-the-counter landowner tag that kind of thing that's that's basically it but yeah everything's pretty much draw anymore around here in new mexico other than private dang um when you're when you're out on these hunts whether it's on private or public land how many how many miles are you putting on each day like on foot i bet you i average i guess on a bull elk hunt I might average, I think I, I did it last year. It's like eight or nine miles. It's not too bad. It's not too bad. But, you know, the deer hunting, that's a different story. I mean, I'm probably, I wouldn't say close to double, close to double that maybe. Wow. Close to double that. The deer hunting is a different deal. Yeah, we really get after it when we're hunting, hunting mule. Yeah. You know, that's a lot of just glass and move and glass and move and all day type of deal what what equipment are you using i mean are you are you using uh just binos are you using a spotting scope as well tripods um what are you using as far as optics go yeah so i i uh i have a spotting scope uh and i pack that with me and i'm all on my binos all the time i mean I and the best purchase I've ever made, you know, is I never let myself have really, really nice glass. And I've always had decent glass, but last year I got a pair of Swarovskis, and that is hands down the best purchase I've ever made in my life. I mean, I just I love them, and I feel like I do better just with my binos than anything. But if like deer hunting or 
whatever, I'll dang sure take my spotter with me, you know, so we can pick a ridge apart or whatever it may be. But a majority of my personal time is behind binos, I guess I'd say. It's just habit more than anything, too. Yeah, I feel like uh, when we when we go out west hunting, we're typically on binos. Somebody will have a spotter yes, with, in case you see something way out, you're trying to get a better look at yep. it. You know, you see something that looks like a bedded yeah. elk. In my case, I've seen plenty of rocks and stumps that I swear the head turns on them. Um, oh, yeah. And then oh, yeah. we get the spotter out, and sure enough, it is not uh, a bull elk. But... Um, I'm excited. I just got my first spotting scope. And so I'm going to be bringing that out this year. Um, man, I can't wait. There's something about glassing. Glassing has turned into one of my favorite things to find a good spot to sit up on, on a ridgeline, on a rock, just in an opening and to get set up and just sit and pick apart the country. It's about as peaceful as it gets. Oh, it is. And then you'd be so surprised at what you find. I mean, it is. And, and, but like you said, I mean, a spotter is definitely a requirement. I have to have a spotter with me. I mean, but like I spend a majority of my time behind my binos, but you're right. I mean, that spotter sure does save me. And like last year, my, one of my cousins had a, had a deer hunt and I was picking a ridge apart and I found, I, I spotted a bull chewing his cud laying down and all you could see was his nose and his mouth moving that was it that was the only thing you could Jeez. see i thought it was a bird at first right but all you could see was his mouth moving and i could see like his five six split just one of his tops like uh, in a tree and i mean you just never know what you're gonna what you're gonna find it is so cool yeah that's awesome i I heard years and years ago, either on a TV show or a podcast about using a tripod with your binos. Well, I had never had a, had a need for any of that because I would hunt like small areas, like the farthest I'm shooting right. in a lot of these places is a hundred yards. And so it's like, man, I don't really need optics period. But then I, I heard, and I think it was on meat eater now that I'm thinking about it. They're like, man, we bring binos everywhere, even squirrel hunting, and we bring a tripod. And I was like, all right. And they said, you can pick out more stuff at 1,000 yards with a tripod than you can at 400 yards freehanding your binos. And I was like, oh, yeah, dang, really? Okay, I'll have to check that out. They're like, the clarity, you actually get to use the clarity that your your optic has um, when you have a stable mount or tripod or anything and so i did i went and bought i went and bought a tripod a lightweight one for the back country and mm-hmm. once i got behind that it changed everything you know you're seeing a rabbit oh, yeah. at 600 yards bounce underneath the uh brush pile where you couldn't see an elk at the same distance with just free handing your binos and right. yeah that's it, the man, number one I, tool i use now i i am like sold and a pretty much all of us, you know, there's a bunch of my, my friends that I guide with, we all started using those trigger sticks. Oh yeah. And man, I love those things, you know, cause I'm, I'm carrying them. And so I'll just throw my glasses on top of those trigger sticks. And I just use that, you know, the glass off of, and I, I love them. I, I couldn't, I couldn't go without them. 
to be honest with you. Like, I don't know. But like you said, I glass off of those all the time. Like when I'm standing, I don't even lean on trees anymore, nothing. I just throw those shooting sticks out there and I glass off the top of those shooting sticks. But yeah. I'm also an equipment Nazi too. Like <laughs> I, I have, I, I have equipment and I'm terrible. Like if there's something that I don't like about it or it hinders me in any way, like it's gone. Like I get rid of it. I, I'm terrible about that. But so the stuff that I do use, I really, I really like it. (laughs) Yeah. Those trigger sticks, my buddy got me hooked on those and I absolutely love them. I've got, I've got that bog tripod. It's heavy. Um, but I use that if we're just in the side by side or on the four wheelers, and right. you know if we yeah. if we do come across elk or or deer or whatever we're hunting, I can pull that out easily, give myself a real solid rest. But when we're hiking, right. those trigger sticks, man, they double as a trekking pole. The only thing that I I want to figure out if somebody makes this or not, uh, like a binocular mount for them, I typically will just lean forward on them, you know, rest the. Right. rest the yeah. binos on them yeah. and then I'll kind of put my weight into it. Um, but yeah. it would be so cool if there was almost a pivoting mount that like swung forward at 90 degrees. So you could have your binos up, be glassing with your binos, exactly. pivot it down and then rest your gun on top and your binos could still stay attached right there. Like you'd be ready. To yeah. Roll. That would make it a lot easier. Yeah. No, I, I do. That's a good idea. You yeah. know, and it's funny you say that. Like I, I had, it was a couple of years ago. I had a different set of shooting sticks. I'll never forget. They had like a piece of built in Velcro on the bottom, you know? So when you put them together, you could Velcro them. Yeah. And I'll never forget this, man. I, it was just one of those deals. We were walking down a, a logging road and a, and a bull just stepped out on the logging road. He was a good six by six. And I went to throw those sticks down for my hunter and that Velcro, like, wasn't stuck but it like wrapped around them in this weird way and i couldn't get them apart oh no and he couldn't get steady and it was just it was a wreck it was a wreck and the first thing i did is when we got down to the lodge i went and those suckers were in the dumpster (laughs) i just i mean stuff like that you know little things like a piece of velcro whatever little things like that i really try to pay attention to because in the heat of the moment if it can go wrong it probably will yeah, the um, the innovation in hunting equipment over the past few years has been amazing. Like even just from people going from snap buttons to magnetic buttons on clothing or getting away from Velcro like you had mentioned, um, there are so many cool details that you can just tell it was designed by a hunter or, you know, this guy was just an engineer and he put super noisy Velcro on this instead of, instead of like a soft right. plastic piece or rubber piece. Um, but the the only issue, so I haven't had a ton of issues with those trigger sticks, and I'm curious if you've experienced any of this. In the, when the weather changes a lot, when it gets really cold, have you noticed any issue with them not wanting to open up or or compress back down? The only problem I've ever had with them is dust and dirt or snow. Like if snow gets like down in the tube, yep. I I have a hard time getting them up and down, and I gotta clean them and whatnot. But you're right; that's the only 
that's the only thing about them. Like if any dust, dirt, snow, water, whatever gets in that tube, I, they are a little, little sticky. Yeah, I guess. Oh yeah, that's we've had we've had that. And I mean, when you're when you've got it strapped to the front, like when we're driving around, we try to keep everything as accessible as possible. Um, the rifles have to go in a hard case, um, a fully enclosed hard case, and. So like that alone, we have to like unbungee it from the back rack of the of the four wheeler or the side by side or whatever. But the trigger sticks, I'll just typically throw one bungee over the top um, right. and have it on the front. Well, when you're putting on a hundred miles a day on side by sides or four wheelers, you can imagine the amount of dust and water oh, and yeah. just junk that gets on them. Um, but they really do. They have held up pretty good. And I've only the reason I ask about that is I had one day and I couldn't fully figure out why they weren't wanting to extend when I pulled the trigger. Um, I figured it was from an extreme temperature change or, or junk getting inside the tube. Right. Yeah. No, that's, that's the only downfall, right? But no, I, I love them, but you're right. It's putting those hard miles on them. It's crazy. But in back swinging back to what you said earlier, the innovation and stuff now is just insane. Like the innovation in shooting just, shooting now is crazy to me it blows me away oh yeah i got to i got to experience um some of the new things coming out i went up to salt lake city to the uh western Mm -hmm. hunt expo and oh yeah geez man the things that people are coming out with are blowing my mind uh like vortex i got to look at their new optics They've got uh, ballistic information inside the optics. So, like, while you're looking, not only does it give you range, but it will give you elevation and windage adjustments based on your rifle. Um, And, like, you pair it up with your app, and so you can punch in all that information. Uh, There's another company. I don't remember who it was. They've got a range finder, just a handheld piece, that when you range an object, even if it's across the valley, it will actually pair with your phone's hunting app. Um, man, I really wish I had the details on this, what companies this was. But basically, it'll drop a pin of what you just ranged on your phone. So, yeah. like, say you shoot an Definitely. elk across yep. the valley, you know, you can drop a pin right there from across the valley without having to guess and being like, oh, man, I'm pretty sure it's right here. No, when you range it on your rangefinder, it'll drop a pin to that exact spot. Yeah, and you know what's funny is that uh, pair of Soros that I just got, they have the tracking assistant in them, so they do the same thing. Oh, they nice. Do this, like, it's it's so cool. You can range something, and then, like, you pick your glasses up and hit the range button again, and it'll tell you, you know, 25 meters this way, and it'll show you an arrow, or if you have to turn, it'll tell you. So it tells you how way. to get back in your binos mm-hmm. to that spot? Yes, sir. Sure does, it, Dude. but it can't. It can it can pair to your phone, like it'll show you on the their app. But it'll tell you in the binos like which way to go with little arrows. It's the coolest thing. I Man. play with it all. I've never used it in the field. I play with it all the time. It is. It's pretty cool. We're gonna get really bad as hunt. I. Part of me is like, man, this innovation is gonna ruin us, and it's gonna make us really bad hunters. Like we're gonna rely so much on it because. You know, I, but I've been in that position where I'm out glassing something at 700 yards and you're trying to walk your buddy into it. And you're like, okay, you go yeah. from that tree. If that tree is the center of the clock, you go to 11 o'clock. 
about 50 yards up from that. And, you know, you just kind of bounce back and forth and you try to walk them in. That would be so amazing to have binoculars that walk you back into it. And that way, especially when you've got a hunter and you're guiding and you try to point it out and they can't find it, you just say, hey, come get behind these binos. It'll point you in the right direction. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, I think the same thing sometimes, but then there's, there's like events, you know, that bring me back to reality, you know, that no amount of technology can ever get you out of. And oh, yeah. that really, you know, like the sad part, I mean, and it happens and it's the sad part of the business. Like you have a wounded animal. There is no piece of equipment that can help you track it. Like that's all you, that's all your instinct. I mean, so there's some of that stuff that I think will always stay the same, you know, but I like, I agree with you, like the shooting, the shooting's getting, it's wild. It's so wild. And that's something else I enjoy, you know, every week there's a new set of clientele that come in and I get to see pretty much every rifle or every bow or whatever it is you could imagine and watch them shoot them, you know, cause we make sure they check their zero check function, all that stuff. And I've seen pretty much every caliber you could think of. <laughs> I mean, you know, and what it does to animals. I mean, that's the cool part too. I get to see the performance. Oh so yeah. It's pretty interesting. What, what, um, speaking of calibers and, and, um, ammunition and rifles, what have you found to be like your go-to or what would you recommend to somebody as, as the most effective caliber out there? Oh man, there's so many wildcat rounds. Now I'm a seven mag guy, tried and true. Uh, there's a gentleman that actually puts mine and my a buddy of mine's rifles together for us. And he's Clyde Kane's his name and I'll dang sure give him all the credit in the world. He's like, a he's a wizard, man. He builds us loads and does all the testing and gets our rifles ready to rock and roll. But it was a couple of years ago, I was looking to get a new rifle. And I was talking to Clyde about, you know, 28 nozzlers and all the things out there. And they're great. They are great, phenomenal rounds. But like he said, you cannot beat the ballistics of a 7 Mag. And that's what I use. I've used it for my whole life. Um, I love it. And I, it works for me. And I think it's a perfect caliber for North America. I don't think you can beat it, but I'm sure there's, I mean, obviously there's people with different ideas about it, but I grew up shooting my dad's 708 when I was a little kid and then graduated to a seven mag. So I kind of stayed in that 284 caliber range. Yeah. Yeah, there's so many there's so many cool rifles out there, and I fall into that trap where I see the newest, hottest round that comes yep. out, and I'm like, oh my gosh, dude, that's so sweet, that's screaming. At the end of the day, if you can be comfortable with the rifle that you've had for mm-hmm. 15 years, you're not gonna outshoot it with the coolest, newest round. You might have better velocity, um, better BC or energy at at impact, but like if you are truly comfortable with a, a weapon and you shoot it well and you've got it sighted in out at distances and you're comfortable shooting at certain distances. Oh yeah. The worst thing you can do is go and switch. Yep. 
Yes, sir. Yeah, and it's all shot placement too, right? I mean, it's uh, yeah. If you don't you don't hit anything right or correctly, there. I mean, it doesn't matter what you hit them with. I mean, these animals are super athlete. I call them super athletes. I've seen them. The toughest animals, North American animals, are just so tough, and I don't think people give them credit for that. And shot placement is key. It is just an essential part of it. Yeah, I that was that was a foreign concept to me the first time I went out elk hunting. My buddy was like, "Dude, you keep pulling the trigger until that thing's on the ground," and I'm like, "What?" Yes, sir. And he's like, "Oh yeah, yep. you shoot if you shoot an elk and it's a marginal shot." That thing could be three miles and in the deepest, nastiest canyon, and you'll never find it. And I'm like, really? Like, I mean, if I single lung anything, it's still going to die, you know? And he's like, I'm telling you right now, you can put it right through the heart, the lungs, the chest cavity, and it still might go 400 yards. And I'm just like, you know, in my mind, oh, I'm I'm the guy. I know everything. I'm a whitetail hunter. And <laughs> I get out there, and sure enough, you know, I put a shot. I was shooting. I was shooting that first elk I shot with a 338 wind mag and, Mm -hmm. you know, loads of energy, great velocity, like everything about the round was great. And I just ended up picking it up because a guy was selling it and I needed a bigger, Mm -hmm. bigger rifle than a 25-06 for chasing after elk. So I, I get it. I'm dialed in with it. I shoot this elk at 300 and I think it was 31 yards and... Everything felt great. I heard the impact. I mean, it just hurt. It sounded like you just got punched in the chest, right? And that elk just stood there. It ate that round like it was Halloween candy. And it wasn't until a cow ran up behind it and ran into it that it took off running. We went down there. We wanted to get on blood right away. And once we got down there, we looked over and that elk was still standing there looking at us. And, uh, we double tapped it at that point, dropped it in its tracks, but I just couldn't believe around that size that an animal could just eat it as if nothing had ever happened. Oh man. I've got, I've got so many stories of stuff that I've seen like that. It's, I mean, like you're exactly right in what you said. They just, they are so tough. There's two shots that I hate to see take place. The first one is hitting one in the shoulder, like high in the shoulder. If you hit a bull elk high in the shoulder, chances are you're never going to see them again. And then the second one is if they, like someone shoots and they drop like a sack of potatoes, that's, you have a 50-50 chance. Because if you kind of hit them up there in no man's land, and I've seen it, I don't know how many times, you'll like shock that spine. And they'll get their feet up underneath them, and they're gone. They're, they're gone, no blood, nothing. I mean, so you got a 50-50 chance. Either you hit them up in, the, up in the spinal cord, right, and you get the job done, or you hit them in that void. And I've seen it. They'll get their feet up underneath them, and, I mean, they're gone. They just they're, – they're, they are insane. It, they're crazy. I've seen some of the weirdest things. It's nuts. That's that's good I to mean, know because pri- pri- go ahead. Prime example, not not to interrupt you, but prime example. Last year, I, I had a uh, a boy that they had graduated and was a graduation present. His dad got him a hunt, and they were loving every aspect of it. It was great. It was right in the peak of the rut, you know. And he hits this bull, and he hit him 
as solid, and I, I witnessed it. I mean, as solid as you could hit one. And, I mean, obviously, he wasn't far from us, you know, 40, 50 yards, whatever. Pairs off into the timber, and we're high-fiving. And I was high-fiving and, and because it was a great shot. And, you know, we waited and told him, we'll just wait here. It was in the morning. We had all day. We're going to let him let him do his deal up there, and we'll go find him. Man, we'd go up there to go go get him and couldn't find him. Could not find him. We looked for that bull for two and a half days and could not. He just disappeared. He vanished just like a ghost. Oh <laughs> you never gosh. know. You, ne- you never know. I mean, they're, they're tough. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, and, and to hear you talk about the high shoulder shot where you see him drop, I mean, I feel like that's a pretty popular thing on YouTube right now, watching people shoot long range. They're aiming for that high shoulder shot and watching elk drop. I've never I, I've never tried to attempt that shot yet. Um, I grew up, you know, you're tucking it behind the shoulder crease. You're trying to, mm-hmm. you're trying to get lungs and heart, and um, switching away from that seems really difficult for me but yeah you see all these people and they're like oh man when you hit that shoulder blade it fragments it takes out the spine like it drops them in their tracks and sure it looks good on video but you know a lot of what you probably don't see is what you're talking about you hit that dead space and it might shock the spinal cord for a little bit and then if they get right back up you know they could be gone and you're over here high five oh, yeah. not even looking at it because you think it's dead on the ground yes sir yep no, I don't. I don't, and I never will deviate from that behind the shoulder shot. I mean, you got you got to take out the main the motor, right? If you want to stop the train, that's kind of yeah. my philosophy on it, personally. No, that makes that makes perfect sense. Well, man, I yeah. I want to respect your time. I know you're a busy guy, and somehow we've already talked for an hour. It doesn't doesn't make sense. Um, we'll have to do a follow up on this one. Um, but before we hop off, I want to give you a chance to share with the listeners where they can find you, where they can follow along, or even guide, uh, book a hunt uh, with you. Oh, man, I'm I'm on Instagram, uh, Jake underscore Trujillo1, and Facebook. I, I you know, put hunting, hunting pictures and videos and stuff like that up there and kind of let everyone know what's going on and you want to come hunt you can reach out to us on on instagram or facebook or the lodge at Chama. that's uh the best way to get a hold get a hold of me and come out to new mexico awesome man yeah it's a it's definitely on the bucket list i want to check out that part of the country it seems like there's a lot of cool opportunities and um even the non-natives that you guys have down there i i don't remember oh man the orcs yeah yeah yeah, like just just really cool things that you wouldn't expect to find in the U.S. Uh, and I don't know what it is about the southern states, man. It seems like more and more you're you're finding cool species like that that you can go and experience that you wouldn't be able to anywhere else in the country and in most parts of the world. Oh yeah, it's it's so diverse. You can come kill an elk a deer and then go hunt orcs ibex and barbary i mean it's so cool you know the orcs the orcs hunt which is a gems box from africa is a draw hunt in the state of new mexico now in the southern part 
and it is a it is a blast jeez that is yeah that's so foreign to me that i can't wrap my head around it that i could go and hunt an animal like that here in the u.s um yeah. but and you're right that would that would take us a whole nother hour because you're talking that's a whole different ball game you know hunting those animals down there it's it's pretty cool it's it's fun well, yeah, this might just have to be one of a series of episodes where where we chat all about what New Mexico has to offer. It sounds like you've got a pretty good idea of how to get things done, and uh, I definitely appreciate all the tips, tricks, and strategies that you shared with me and with the listeners. Hopefully, it can help people be more successful out west. Yes, sir. I sure I sure enjoyed it, and I appreciate the time and giving me the opportunity. Absolutely, man. Thanks, and uh, yeah, until next time, good luck. Hopefully you guys can get on some turkeys here soon. Yes, sir, you too. Good luck, and enjoy the spring and summer coming up. Will do. And that is going to wrap it up for today's show. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I had a ton of fun chatting with Jake and following the recent trends. It just hasn't been enough time. Like, I could have talked to him for a lot longer. I know he had a lot more insight, tips, tricks, strategies to share with all of you guys. And we're going to have to start doing like multi-part series, whether it's like episode one, two, and three with Jake um, or chasing after mountain goats in, you know, five different parts of that. Whatever that looks like, I'm excited. And I think I just need to either extend the time or have guests on for multiple episodes in a row. I can't wait to get down to New Mexico. After hearing all of that stuff, after hearing about raking and and chasing after elk in early September, holy cow. Like, to have an elk, I don't know if I'd rather have an elk sneak in on me or have it screaming and know that it's coming. I don't know if I could handle the anticipation of having one screaming and getting closer and closer every time it bugles, but I'm willing to give it a try. I'll tell you that much. Um, hopefully you guys are getting out. Hopefully you got your applications in for preference points for draws out West. I know a lot of those are already done. I almost missed mine for Colorado and it's a good thing. I've got good friends out there that reminded me like, dude, you got to get it in by 8 PM. Otherwise, uh, you're out now. There are over the counter opportunities still, but there's something about building those points in hopes of getting a trophy unit down the road. I'm pumped about it. But until next time, guys, get out there and chase a new adventure.